Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to Inside Cyber Diplomacy. Between the two of us, I think we know almost everyone involved in cyber diplomacy. And the idea behind this is really to have frank conversations with those leaders in this area and bring that to the rest of the world, this new area of diplomacy, and talk to these leaders about what's going on. Our plan is that you'll hear things on this podcast that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Frank, not scripted, direct conversations. Hope you like it. I know we will. So please listen in. Welcome to a special edition of Inside Cyber Diplomacy, where we talk about what the Biden administration will need to do on cybersecurity and what the likely next steps are. With me is Chris Painter. Chris, what do you think? Well, I, you know, I think that we're going to see a lot of changes from the Trump strategy, particularly around cyber diplomacy. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we'll talk about this in more depth, but I think one of the, the major things you're going to see is a change in messaging from the top. You know, I think uh, despite the best efforts of a number of people in the administration who were good, this was never a priority for President Trump. He was never good at messaging this as a priority. And particularly with respect to, to adversaries like Russia, he was very weak on that. So I think that's going to be one of the predominant changes. And I also think we're going to see a lot more multilateralism, a lot more reliance on alliances than we've seen under the Trump administration. What would a new strategy look like? Because I think it goes beyond cyber. We've had uh, strategic failures now for, depending on how you count, 20 years in a row. We've got a new environment where you've got China, Russia, Iran being much more active. We'll, we'll have to give up on our quixotic efforts to bring democracy to the Middle East and Afghanistan. What's the cyber role in this new strategy and how will we get there? Yeah, I, I think this is something I think both you and I have been saying for a while. You've got to stop treating cyber as this boutique separate issue. This has to be part of our core national security, economic strategy, diplomatic strategy, you know, really our, our overall strategy. And the more we can integrate cyber into that and not think of it as just a separate thing, the more important it is. So when you're dealing with countries like China and, and strategic competition and Russia and some of the things that they've been doing, that requires not just thinking of cyber as one element, or it, it requires thinking of cyber as one element of a larger picture. And, and when we made progress, especially with respect to China, we've done that by treating cyber as just one part of a larger trade and national security agenda. So I think that's going to be the core, not you know having this whole strategy look at these actors, not in isolation, not just in cyber, but something something much larger. But that leads us into organization, which was not at the top of my list, but you've got two issues. You have the dismantling of the White House cyber structure. There's been recommendations on how to replace that, but it's been weak for years. And then you have the question about what to do at state. I think they're close to creating a new bureau. Where are you coming out on this? So I, let me start with the White House. I think there's been lots of proposals, and they all share one common thread, which is to elevate it, not demote it, as President Trump and, and, and Bolton did in particular. You know, structure is not everything. Structure does not necessarily dictate results, but it does have a pretty big impact on results, and it has a big impact on messaging both to our friends around the world and to our adversaries. And so having a strong coordinating function in the White House who can actually uh, orchestrate these various agency efforts is important. I think one thing we've seen in the Trump administration is some good agency efforts, but frankly, pretty fragmented and on their own. Yeah. And so you really need that coordinating function. 
Uh, and I suspect I'll do that. Now, what that flavor is going to look like, who knows? I mean, there's people who said it should have budget power. There are people who say that it has to be, you know, a separate part of the White House. I think, personally, I think, uh, going back to what we proposed many years ago, having a dual hat between the NFC and the NEC, the National Economic Council and the National Security Council, a real dual hat, like the Inicon person is now, uh, at a high level, who has access to the president, makes the most sense. First is the idea that you have a USTR-like entity, which was roughly more or less what the Cyber Solarium Commission recommended. Difficult to get, probably need congressional authority. The second is create a standalone office. Uh, that means they'll end up out on Minnesota Avenue, somewhere near the, the Maryland border. So you really come back to what do you want to do at the White House? Dual hatting might be good. What do you think about some link to OMB, which we played with in Obama and never really resolved. So I think that's critical because to give this position power, you know, I think you have to do two things. One, the agencies have to want to listen and will listen to this, this person, this entity. Giving them the input into and power over the purse is the best way to do that. Uh, and so a link to OMB to allow them to be able to at very least weigh in on the budgets of these agencies, mm. I think is critically important. I think another aspect and, and, you know, I agree with you. Just having another part of the White House is somewhat problematical because you still need someone to advise the president in a confidential way. So so it creates some messes. But I think you want to give it a budget power, but you also want to um, make sure it has purview over everything. So one proposal said, well, it will have purview over everything except for what the military is doing and the intelligence committee is doing. And to me, that's crazy. We, nobody else in the White House gets defense off yeah. uh, functions yeah. and say, particularly in national security, it's like, I am the National Security Council, but I'm not allowed to talk about military or intelligence activities. Yeah, that, that would be great. And it doesn't it doesn't mean we'd rein in. You know, look, I fully expect, you know, I don't think Biden's going to be any is going to be. I think he's going to be strong on Russia and China and using things like cyber command or. Military. Well, it'd be hard to be weaker on yeah, Russia. That's very true. I, well, even even the Biden campaign statement about election interference was very strong, I thought. And and, you know, I, I, I do expect that we're going to use all the tools we have, including our military tools, and we should, you know, and we should use them strategically as part of a whole of government function, which has not been the, the case so far. Before we go to state, then let's talk about uh, offensive operations, because one of the things that I would regard as progress is that the president delegated to General Nakasone some authority to undertake offensive operations. And of course, now you've got people saying that was a key to success in defending the elections. That's another matter. But Nakasone, I think, is right. You need persistent engagement. You need to go and touch our opponents when they do something naughty. You were the, not always a fan of offensive operations, though. And no, I mean, I actually thought they had their place. They're part of the tool set. You have to part of the tool set includes sanctions, diplomatic actions, indictments. They can be a very effective part of the tool set. They also have to be a part of an overall strategy too. And we have to look at all of our national interests. So. You know, I salute the things that General Nakasone has done. I think they've done a lot of good things in disruption. Disruption is an important aspect, but you also need deterrence, and they can play a role in that as well. Oh, I hate deterrence. I know you hate deterrence, but I do think we, we can do it. We just have not done it very well. I mean, not that we've not done it very well. We have not done it at all, frankly. You know, Well, yeah. People say deterrence has failed. We just haven't done it. So that's a fair point. 20th century deterrence is what I hate. You can't say that we put all of our tools together, even when we use sanctions, we take the sanctions off. We haven't done them in a place that's really going to hurt the adversary. I mean, there's lots more we can do. So 
I think Nakasone and, and what he's been doing has an obvious and important role. Where I think we need to be careful, however, is that we just don't have it off on the side doing its own thing and not integrate it into a larger strategy. And, you know, to the extent, for instance, we're doing things on third country territory mm-hmm. that are our friends, it's better in the long term to have collective action with those friends rather than pissing them off. So I think we can have a, a there's a median there. Again, I think what's been done has been good. The, the other thing I said would say is, we need to have some meaningful metrics around it. Are these activities helping? How much are they helping? How do we use them in, in an effective way? Leaking to the New York Times does not qualify as a metric. No, no. And look, if you're trying to tell your adversary, don't do things, you want to be more transparent. You want to say, hey, we're doing this to you. Stop it. And we'll stop doing this to you. You know, And we haven't done that. Yeah, I'm not sure we've reached the pain threshold that you need for Vladimir Putin. Certainly not for Xi Jinping. That touches on the issue everyone's raised, though, in the conversations we've both had, and that is that there's been a fragmentation under this White House, and so FBI is messaging, and DOD is messaging, and NSA is messaging, and state, and DHS. DHS is a big loser on this. So one thing Obama did well uh, under Michael Daniel was assign responsibility and give agencies the lead on certain topics. What would you do now? It needs to be fixed. I mean, we, we need to continue to do that. I mean, it took many, it took like a year and a half to do the incident response executive order under Obama that said, who do you call on threat actors and, and others, you know, between DHS and FBI and others. So it, it takes a while to do that. But we need to do that. We can't just have agencies as good as they are acting independently. You can't have Nakasone doing one thing, Chris Ray doing another thing, and uh, Chris Krebs doing another thing without close coordination. And, you know, I think they've all done some good things, uh, frankly, but that has to be, there has to be a conductor. There has to be a conductor. That's the major thing that's been missing. You, that's the orchestration thing. That, that's, I think, critically important. And I do think that's what the Obama administration did very well. I'm pretty sure we don't agree on the State Department, but who knows, maybe you've changed your mind and come to the right place. <laughs> So my my view on the State Department is really encompassed very much in the Cyber Diplomacy Act that has been around now for a couple of years and and in the Solarium Commission report, which is that, you know, the the problem there's again, there's been some good things done by my former colleagues, in the State Department. They've been working on an initiative uh, trying to get more countries to play in reaching out to those countries. It's been hampered, frankly, by the way that this administration has treated our allies and partners at a higher level, you know, even close allies mm. and partners and NATO and other things. But they've, they've done a lot with what they had. That said, you know, the way that had been demoted and, you know, not emphasized in terms of importance there, I think has caused real problems. And it's been a message again to our adversaries and friends. So I think at a minimum, it has to be re-elevated. You know, I had the, the ability to uh, report to the secretary and, and work with the deputy secretary. But at the very least, I think it has to be, you know, at a bureau level. No, an assistant secretary. They need to do that. Yeah, assistant secretary. Look, people talk about ambassadors. That's important. But you can be a lower level ambassador. So an assistant secretary, I think, is important. And then because it's cross-cutting, and this is what's recognized in the Cyber Diplomacy Act, I do think that it you should have a cross-cutting chain of command because it's not just about the straight security issues, uh, it's or the human rights issues or the economic issues. Uh, that's why I like the idea of it being to the political undersecretary or higher. And the political undersecretary, that's the third highest position in the State Department. You have the secretary, you have you have the deputy secretary, then you have that. So it could report. That, that's where we don't agree. I think now embed it in the structure, put it, put it under T, uh, beat off EB, and 
you make it like any other bureau at state. It's it's got to be integrated into diplomacy. Yeah, the one problem I have with T, and I, you know, look, I think Rose Gottmiel and others who used to run T have been great. The problem with T is it's very narrowly focused on on those uh, T efforts, which are much more national security efforts. Mm-hmm. And you lose something at state when you're not tied into the regional bureaus, when you're not tied into the other economic and other bureaus. I don't think it should go in the economic bureau. I think that'd be crazy. I don't think it should go into some nebulous undersecretary who covers like miscellaneous things. That's a problem too. I want it to have the ability, even if you put it into T, that it has the express authority to cross cross coordinate across the department. In other words, that if it says we should be doing something, because as you know, all these issues are overlapping. You know, we don't. The Internet Governance Forum is not the Internet Governance Forum anymore. It's about security now. Everything is about security, and all these things are overlapping. And if you don't have an ability to coordinate that, what you do is you you bake in a balkanization or a fragmentation of the department where different power centers are doing different things. So, so Jim, I'm not against it going to T. It just has to have that broader mandate. That's just the new, the new secretary lays out rules on what people's lanes are, and that has to be one of the lanes. It's in T. It's an assistant secretary. And anyone who touches cyber has to coordinate with them. Pretty straightforward. But someone needs to set forward a strategy. What do you think of what the Russians are up to in the UN? To be fair, the people at state that you left behind have done a great job. And there's been some real progress. But the Russians are incredibly active and have multiple new initiatives. Yeah. Look, I I think uh, I have nothing but good things to say about my former colleagues at state. I'm glad many of them stayed. Yeah. You know, as I said, we we were the first dedicated office, you know, at that level in the world. There are 40 of them now. I, I prefer to think of you as the poster child. <laughs> okay. So there are 40 of them around the world. That's great. Some in, some in friendly and some in unfriendly countries. You know, I think they've done a great job, but the circumstances have changed. I think Russia is less willing to reach a consensus on issues. China certainly is as well. Unless we have a real change in the geopolitical environment, I don't see that changing in the short term. You know, I used to predict that the OEWG and GGE would end in consensus, but not a very momentous one. I see some hope in this uh, French Egypt proposal about an action plan. It's a, n- a bit nebulous in terms of how well it's described right now, but it, but it does have some core concepts that might actually allow further discussion yeah. to happen that could be productive. But I do worry about Russia, you know, continuing to be a, a, an actor who's going to disrupt those proceedings. We have the UN Third Committee and cybercrime. That's going to be a real... That was a, that was a brilliant move, because if you look at the mandate, it's almost exactly the same. Same as the GGs. Mandate. Yeah, and 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 you know they'll push in that. Now, how much progress that's gonna, you know, how much gonna be done is gonna take a while there. Sure. So, so I am concerned about that too. And then, look, we still see, you know, very strong, you know, outside of the policy realm, we continue to see Russian actions, you know, that have fed off of not petty and other things. We still see you know, a lot of you know bad actions there. So. I don't. I can't predict. I don't know where you are in predicting where these processes are going to go. I still think they'll reach some kind of consensus, but it won't be that. Much. Well, the, the UN keeps kicking the deadline in the hopes. They pretty much told me this explicitly that you know if we kick it past the election, maybe Trump will be gone. Uh, so I think that increases odds of getting a good outcome. Talking to the Chinese, the Chinese are not interested in a deal unless it's on their terms, right? And they've said. You know, if we have to walk away, it used to be we were afraid to be the only ones who blocked consensus. We're not afraid anymore. So I think the Russians are a pain, but the Chinese are, are going to be even more difficult. So that actually goes back to one of the things we said in the beginning, and that goes to this high-level messaging. You know, when Obama was president, 
we t- you know, take China as an example. The messaging was clear and consistent for about two years on the theft of intellectual property until they came to the table and they didn't want to come to the table, but they did. And we actually got some traction for that some, for some period of time until the relationship became so bad it didn't matter anymore. Every time Obama met with another foreign leader, a, a deliverable, as we call them in the, in the hood, <laughs> was a new cyber dialogue with a new country or a set of countries. So having that level of, I think, leadership will be important. And the way that plays with China and Russia is if cyber is factored into the larger relationship with these countries, not just with those countries directly, but also with our you know, friends and neighbors mm-hmm. collectively to put pressure on them. So you're not just doing cyber qua cyber, but looking at the overall relationship and other tools, economic and others you can use, that could change things. We had this whole structure of uh, confidence building measures, at least with the Russians, like a hotline and regular consultations, it's all fallen by the wayside. Would you bother to revive it? I think, look, even during the Cold War, we had a hotline. I do think you need a hotline. You have to kind of, you have to be clear-eyed on how it's going to be used and where it's going to be used, certainly. Yeah, right now, if you call up and say, hey, Igor, was that you? Yeah, it was not me. Whether it was or it wasn't. So the hotline doesn't feel good, but it's not that useful. I saw a presentation uh, that you actually hosted at CSIS of the uh, current assistant secretary over at state. The acting undersecretary. Who claimed the Obama administration, one of its failings was they thought the hotline would be enough, which is absurd. No one in the U.S. government thought the hotline would be enough for Russia. It was one of the things you need to de-escalate, certainly. And we need to make sure that's there. You know, we shouldn't have talks that are just show trials. In other words, Russia and Putin most recently has pushed for a resumption of the high-level talks with the U.S. Yeah. Well, it doesn't mean we shouldn't talk with Russia, but if we're only having talks to say, hey, everything's okay, that doesn't serve our interests. So we have to do things that are in our interest and figure out how to how to have those discussions. Were you at the meeting with the Chinese where they said, okay, we have a hotline, but you have to give us 24 hours advance notice through diplomatic channels before you use it? Yeah. It's like, I'm not sure you've got the concept. That's right. I've said, yeah, we have a hotline. We have lots of hotlines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think that's going to be a harder part is restructuring confidence building measures, restructuring uh, norms. Um, I don't think we need any more norms. Coming up with a mechanism to impose consequences on people yeah. who don't agree with norms. And that might be the biggest problem we have internationally. Yeah. And I don't think that's not new, certainly. And I, I'd submit that no administration so far has been good at, at imposing those consequences in a meaningful way. And this goes back to my failure of deterrence that we haven't given it the college try yet because we've not really imposed meaningful consequences. You know, I think after the election interference, the PNGing of diplomats and the closing of consulates, you know, that that was too little too late, frankly. What Trump did in terms of inconsistent sanctions was undercut completely when he doubted that the Russians actually acted. And that's the messaging from the top issue, which I still think is the most core thing here. So we need to be better at that. We can do it with allies and partners. Now, you know, I think my my former colleagues at State have been trying to um, push this and say, how can we collectively do consequences? We've seen something good out of the EU recently and them imposing sanctions on Russia, China and other actors, which I thought was, you know, frankly, I didn't think they'd ever reach consensus. It was amazing. I was really impressed by that. So I don't I think that is the challenge going forward is getting countries and doing it ourselves and making clear that if there are consequences when you break these rules of the road, because otherwise they're just words on paper. It doesn't mean anything. So the way I think about this is you need certain people to play on your team. You need the five eyes. You need Brussels. You need Berlin. You need Tokyo. 
maybe, you know, people now are cozying up to the Indians again. That's going to be a long time. But if you think about the four I laid out, what would your message be to them? You'd go to Berlin and you'd say, put the past behind us. And then what? Yeah, look, I think the, the message is this is not just for the U.S. This is in their own self-interest. This, you know, They've had these attacks on, the, uh, on their parliament uh, themselves. They've seen a lot of these things happen. And if we act collectively and impose this kind of pressure to change that kind of behavior or to disrupt current behavior, that's going to be in their, to their benefit. Now, what you have to convince them of, the harder part, and this is why I was so happy and surprised about what the EU did recently, is that all these countries have complex relationships with uh, Russia and China, and as every country does. And we have to work with them to understand that this is actually in their best interest in the long term. And I think we can do that. One way not to do that is to threaten them. You know, when we were doing the whole 5G debate and we were saying to countries we were going to withhold in intelligence sharing with them if they didn't follow our lead, that was crazy. That was not the way to win friends or influence friends. <laughs> so so I think we can go to them as, as partners and say, look, we have tools that we can use together to impose these consequences to make sure there's stability in the long term. And you're better off doing that. And that it's it doesn't need to be a formal agreement because you don't want NATO-like rules where you have to have consensus before you can open the door. Now, I mean, Michelle and I were fond of back, you know, before I left, talking about the non-proliferation agreement and the, and the kind of uh, voluntary nature of that in the beginning. And when people say voluntary norms aren't effective, it's like, well, that's ridiculous because. Most of the real work in non-proliferation is done through voluntary norms. And when you sign up for voluntary norms, you really are saying politically that you mean to, uh, to, to follow. If you have a country who has signed up to that norm, let's say the infrastructure one, and then violates it, you know, it creates a real, uh, a real rallying point for countries to say, okay, you violated a norm and you should pay, you know, there should be consequences for that. That's valuable. So what do you think about what the U.S. did then at the last General Assembly with those 26 other countries on agreeing that they could impose consequences? Is that the way forward? I, you know, I think that's helpful. I think it's getting a political statement that consequences are important. Yeah, that's a building block, but you actually have got to do the, okay, now the rubber meets the road. How are you going to do this? When are you going to do this? And I think we need to be transparent about this too. Mm -hmm. Not saying exactly what our red lines are, but saying, look, if you do this to us, we're going to do this to you and then follow through. But that's been one of the problems is identifying meaningful action. I don't know if turning the Internet Research Agency off for a day terrified the Russians. Yeah, I don't think so either. I, when I read that story, if it was true, it just was like, well, that's too late. And uh, they've already done their bad work by then anyway. So that yeah. you need to, you know. There was a really good Defense Science Board report that Chris Inglis was involved in writing back now probably about five years ago that talked about deterrence and talked about having individual um, individual strategies for individual countries because how you affect the decision-making of Putin is going to be very different than Xi, for instance. And I think we saw with intellectual property that China does care about how the rest of the world thinks about them. And they do have economic and other interests that Russia doesn't. So what is it that's going to change their calculus? What is it that's going to cause them pain and use those levers? And I think that's, that's not what we've been doing. Um, so I think there's a lot of room to run there. What have we missed? Yeah, I think the only other thing, and I don't know if you agree with me on this, but there's also, I think, the sense of having a more integrated cyber policy, too. You know, we've long had this division between folks in the innovation community and the security community who think each other are kind of like 
odd ducks. You know, the, the security community thinks the innovation people are crazy and taking risks, and the innovation people think the security people are trying to slow them down. And I think those communities need to come closer together and, and a new administration and make this a holistic uh, sort of approach, I think, because you get more power that way. That's why I go back to saying we didn't really do much about China's theft of intellectual property until it became an economic issue, too. So I think we need that. Human rights has to be part of the mix. You know, this is a little off topic, but what would be a more aggressive approach on human rights? Because it's certainly under this administration, it's been non-existent. And under the previous administration, they were good at making speeches. I don't know if they actually took any action. What would you do? So I, I think it's partly the same thing. It's getting like-minded democracies from around the world to actually not just champion this, like we did with the Freedom Online Coalition, but take take action when we can uh, to enforce those to the extent you can. If you really wanted to infuriate the Chinese, you could insist on playing the Hong Kong anthem before <laughs> every meeting. Well... You know, one thing we did in a lot of our cyber capacity building, which is the other thing, again, I think that my former folks have done a pretty good job with what they had, but I think you need far more resources devoted to capacity building around the world, both because it's desperately needed in places like Africa, but also because it wins, you know, it wins friends and, and people understanding why our view of the world makes sense. And so, you know, we're stupid for not using that tool. But one thing we used to do is as we did cyber capacity building on security, on law enforcement, we baked in issues of human rights because, for instance, you can have a country you say you want to have a new cyber strategy. Great. But if that cyber strategy is basically an excuse to oppress your people, that's not great. <laughs> so so you need to build in the way that's done. And that's been important. And in my current role uh, in the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise, which is all about capacity building, when we talk about national strategies and other issues, we try to integrate some of those issues as well. So, so I think it's not treating them as this outlier. And you're quite right. The messaging... The, largely in this administration has been terrible on that, but making it more integrated into to our policy is going to be important. And so you and I have done a lot with the ASEAN Regional Forum. They do great work. Uh, I admire the OAS. They've also done tremendous work. What would you say about OSCE? Is it hopeless? Should we write it off? No, no, I don't think it's hopeless at all. I, you know, I've been very impressed with what they've been doing recently. First of all, they were the trailblazers. A lot of what ASEAN has done has followed, and the OAS has done, has followed on to a lot of the work that OSCE does. Second, they're doing a lot, they're doing a program right now on their points of contact, trying to make those more robust, uh, having different speakers come in, talking about different subjects. I think that's good. Those one of the confidence building measures are really transparency measures and working between countries. I, I think that there's more work to be done there. Now, institutionally, it has issues because of the way it's set up, to be sure. But I think you can take what they've done, which has been quite good, and, and continue to operationalize that. You know, I think the AU uh, is the next area where there's going to have to be more focus. I think um, they're amenable, but that ties very closely to the capacity building because they. It does. I mean, for them, it's really been about that. Yeah, and we and we had our GFC, our Global Forum Cyber Expertise meeting, uh, annual meeting last year, and Addis Ababa at the AU. I was there. <laughs> you were there. So I, I do think Africa, Africa is looking for help in these things. And the advantage that Africa has is that because it's still building out infrastructure, we can kind of bake a lot of these things in the beginning. So, so you've seen that in the OEWG meetings, too, in New York, is a lot of the African countries are really crying out for capacity building. So, And they have some fabulous people. It's astounding when you look, I think, there's a number of African countries where the OEWG reps were incredible. So real capacity there. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that that's a that's a really good turn because to me that means you know this is not like the nuclear era where you can get some nuclear states together and decide everything. 
you really need a lot of the world involved in these discussions. Although, although there are people who are now saying maybe you should limit this to, in fact, a Russian told me this, maybe you should limit it to the nuclear powers because they're the ones with skin in the game. And it depends which game you're talking about. You can make a global case, but you also have this great power case that we can't. Well, you need, you need a crucible, right? You need something like the GGE, but you also need a wider group, I think. And I think both of those are important. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, the difference between, you know, when Obama took office and now, so that's 12 years, is dramatic sure. in terms of how important cyber is these days. And so I have, you know, I have some confidence that we're going to see a lot of you know, a lot more attention on this. Now, how much progress we're going to see, we'll see. One last question relating to the great power thing, which is that uh, the one great power that I never feel confident about uh, is India. And one of the reasons for that is so many of the leaders went to Moscow State University and they're a bit ambivalent about us, but that ambivalence appears to be shifting as they notice that their neighbor to the north is becoming cranky what would you do with the indians i look i think the indians are absolutely essential to engage with you know we we did that a lot when i was a state in fact we signed this very comprehensive cooperation agreement with india that we really didn't with anyone else and that was a big deal i think india you're right i think india obviously wants to look out for india which every country should do but they're beginning to see that that self-interest really is more aligned with us i think than with russia um and in particularly when they're seeing attacks on their own infrastructure, their own theft of intellectual property issues, they're always going to be independent. They're always going to be a leader in the, the developing world or the non-aligned world. But that's that's even a more reason for us to engage with them and engage with them very strongly. And so I, I go back to that that big difference that I see in terms of much bigger outreach and unilateral and, and multilateralism, you know, not America first, but <laughs> but America with, um, with other countries that will make a difference because we're going to be messaging that on the top when, again, when you have a, a leader level conversation with India, I think these subjects are going to come up now. And I think that's important. So I think this brings us back maybe as a good place to end. There's four people who are really going to set the pace for this. And one is the White House coordinator. One is whoever does the coordinator of state, no matter what it's called. But more importantly, it's also going to be the president and the secretary of state. You need that senior level engagement, but you need people underneath them who have a plan and give them an idea of what direction to move. So depending on who they pick, and we all know some of the candidates, this could turn out really well. What do you think? Look, I'm hopeful. Uh, Even as an ex-prosecutor, I'm often hopeful about things. Not pessimistic. I, you know, I do think one thing that ha- happened during the Obama administration, and you saw this, I think, too, is that when people first started, when we went in to do the cyberspace policy reviews, a lot of the cabinet people and deputies, you know, they didn't really know cyber very well. It was kind of like a weird thing. But over time, when you discuss it more at principals meetings and deputies meetings, people got pretty comfortable with it, you know, and it really changed in terms of the way they were looking at this. And a lot of those people uh, are involved in potential picks for various uh, cabinet posts now. So, you know, depending on what happens, I think almost anyone that gets picked is going to have more of a background in this than they did before, more of an understanding of this. They're not going to be experts, but they don't need to be, as you said. Biden, when his campaign, him and Obama's campaign was hacked into in 2008, and so that made them very aware when they came in. You know, we had the election interference threats this time. That makes him very aware going into this as well. It's unavoidable now. I think everybody knows you have to deal with cyber. Maybe that's a good optimistic note to close on is uh, compared to where we were when Obama came in, it's now a top agenda item. People know about it. And there's some good stuff you can rebuild. Anything you want to put to cap that out? Yeah. And I, I'd hope for one other thing, and maybe I'm being Pollyanna-ish here, but you, you know, never. I always was. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was always proud that cyber writ large was pretty nonpartisan or pretty bipartisan, however you want to put it. Yeah, yeah. When I went and testified on the Hill, you know, there there would be some nickelings about different things, but generally, both Republicans and Democrats were very unified in terms of pushing back against the threats uh, and building our, our defenses and the importance of diplomacy. You know, when my old office was was sort of demoted, uh, it was really a bipartisan effort that came up with the Cyber Diplomacy Act, for instance. So, so I hope we return to that. I think what threw a wrench into that mostly was Russia. And hopefully we're past that. And we're moving back to this this view, like we've had a lot of national security issues. This is critical and we need to succeed on this and this shouldn't be a partisan issue. But maybe that's being too hopeful. No, I think that the majority of Americans think we need to push back on Russia and China. On China, there is consensus on the Hill. On Russia, people are going to have to get over pretending that Putin is our friend. But I'm I'm optimistic too. So with that, let's close it out. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jim. See you later. Final plug. This is part of our larger series, Inside Cyber Diplomacy, where we talk to the people in other governments who do the very things we were talking about, people that Chris knows or I know. Great series. Tune in.